listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we have part two of Peter Rowan. Dos. We want to thank Spencer from Diamond Street Studios. Yes, thanks, Spencer. If you haven't checked out Diamond Street Studios, folks, do. They put out a, They just put out a, recently, they put out a 45, and I tell you how good it is, but I just got the uh, adapter for my record player, so I'm really excited to listen to it. We're going to hear it tonight. <laughs> We're going to do some vinyl tonight. Are you hanging out? Uh, I'm at Seth's house know, for depends. a couple nights. If I get ghosted again, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've had some positive experiences as yes, well. Yes, this is right. But let's get into the show, Rob. Well, first I want to say that, Seth, you know like I know, when people hear about a band... What's the first thing they do most of the time? Oh, what, what do they do? Um, whether it's a fan or more importantly... Oh, they talk over the show. <laughs> or a journalist or a label or a venue or a booking agent. They go to Google. They go to the website. So you want to have a good website. One that's conci- concise, clear. Um, one that represents your band the, the way you want. One that doesn't cost you a lot of money. And one that's easy to put together. And that's why... We are pumped that Banzoogle, Banzoogle is promoting Osiris and specifically our podcast. Um, this is a company that will, they, first of all, they work with everybody from garage bands to Grammy winners. I went to their website. It's super easy to set up your own website off of. It's a very clean, easy site to navigate through. Yeah, and it, you don't have to worry. You don't hear, hear Grammy winners and be like, oh, we're going to get lost in the shuffle. No, this is a very simple step-by-step system that everybody uses. It gets you on there in minutes. You can choose from all these templates, customize your design, and in just a few clicks, boom. There's a lot of options out there right now, and if you're a band and you're looking to build a website and do it easily on your own, this is the way to go. I mean, I'm not going to mention the other competitors that are circles and you know other shapes, even, but the point is, I don't even know. This is designed for musicians, built for musicians by, by musicians. Musicians. Your EPK will already be built in, which means a merch and a download store to sell music merchandise. Of course, you're going to have a tour calendar and a tour calendar that. that provides the information with clarity and is easy to find. You can put together a list. Seth is the king of a, of a mailing list. He's been benefiting from having a mailing list for, for decades now. Fighting to maintain my mailing list. And then integrations to pulling content from other online services. And of course, of course, musician-friendly team providing seven-day-a-week support. Now, understand when we say support, they're talking about support for the website. Don't call them up and be like, so um, am I, I'm on the road, I'm just back, and my wife is just yelling at me because I'm, I'm on the road all the time. What do I do? It's not that kind of support. Yeah, folks. if you need emotional support, there's a podcast for that. Oh, is there? Somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure. Plans start at just eight twenty nine a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. But at that price, Rob, yeah. if they enter, what promo code do they get a discount? Inside out, get fifteen percent off the first year, and you're helping this podcast out. Help us, let us help you. Help us help you. Again, we aren't asking anybody for money. We just want you to support our sponsors. So please do go to bandzoogle.com, use promo code Inside Out, and build your website today. How did we get the sponsor, Seth? Hi, I'm Bob Crawford from the Avid Brothers, and the podcast you're listening to is part of the Osiris Network, a global community connecting passionate music fans with podcasts about music, artists, and culture. For more information about all the shows in our network, please visit OsirisPod.com. Osiris. That is kind of burying your lead right there, because yes, Bob Crawford is in the Avid Brothers, and we love the Avid Brothers. Oh, yes. They just announced Swept Away is a, a musical set to their music and lyrics, and it will be debuting next June of 2020. 
Uh, you can find out about that on Jambase, another partner of ours. And their tour starts May 10th in Whitewater Amphitheater in New Braunfels, Texas, uh-huh. with Lucas Nelson. Woo! Uh, who hopefully will get on the show, but we'll see about that. Yeah, he better. It's your fault. I've got so much to ask him. It's totally totally like to do a career spanning interview. But in the meantime, they're coming here and playing Sweetwater Fest. They're playing Royal Fest, scattered dates, but their real tour oh. starts May 10th. They're going to be le- all over the country. And in the fact that they are coming here, Rob, for Sweetwater Fest, do you know... Do you know that we're doing – well, I'm doing the 419 Got a Minute to Give auction. The Ava Brothers are participating in the auction, and their proceeds, all the money raised for that on their behalf is going to go to Press On Fund, uh, which is uh, helping uh, children, cancer um, survivors and whatnot. And it's a really amazing organization. But 419 – this auction, check it out. You can uh, go to 420 Fest, Sweetwater 420 Festival's website. You'll go, you'll see there's a 419 section there. All these bands and their charities. It's going to be amazing. I'll post it on our socials and Rob. And I was jokingly saying that he buried his lead, and that's because he's not just in the Avid Brothers. Bob Crawford is also with Dr. Benjamin Sawyer co-host and co-producer of The Road to Now. Current episode as Origins of American Immigration Policy. Very interesting. And you might want to check out episode 123, where Jacob Lewis talks about the importance of storytelling and how to tell a great story. And Seth, I got a couple other Osiris notes, if you can be patient for just a moment. Um, The Female Centrics, which I've liked their podcast, but they hit one out of the park. Because I have been curious about Ghosts of the Forest and... I start listening to her review of the first show of the tour and her talking about the music and the CD, and it started making me think, about, I'm about to go see my grandma, my, my grandmother. She, thank God she doesn't listen to this. My stepmother. Oh, Sonny. Who is still grieving the loss of my father, and I am too, but it's much more of an impact on her. There was, they had the whole world, just the two of them. And um, this reminded me of it. I'm going to go buy the CD and get all into this. I've been putting it off because I have so many other things going on. I'm getting that Ghost in the Forest CD because Female Centrics did such a moving and, a, and, a, and really strong review. No. Why a CD instead of just listening to it on Spotify? Because I want to have it in the car, and then I want to give it to my stepmother when I get down. If I'm going to listen to it, and then when I leave Florida, I'm going to leave it with my stepmother. Do you think your stepmother that you called grandmother is going to actually listen to the CD? or she listen to Costa? No. Why? Oh, thank you for this Costa, Rob. I don't like ghosts. I don't like ghosts. She's not Jewish. She lives in Florida. She has tons of Jewish An friends. old woman who lives in Florida sounds like that. She's like me. She's Jewish adjacent. Oh, boy. As Rob used to say, he was Jewish by... Insertion. Um, not so much anymore. Uh, let's see. Beyond the Margin, which is the podcast version of Across the Margin. Go it's ahead. It's better than butter. It's a margin. They just came back, interview with Ian Johnson, who wrote The Bounce and the Echo, Dying to Love a Game. This is a guy who played ba- basketball. And a lot of people would have seen it as a successful career, particularly in his young days. He even played in the pros. But he also talks about a, a lot of the things that are associated with it, including mental health issues and finding your way. That's Dying to Love a Game. So check that out out. Seth, Rob, I really appreciated uh, getting to sit down with Peter Owen for this extended amount of time. We're getting part two. Uh, you asked me last week about the holiday hootenanny, which is why Peter was in town. And I only began to explain what it was. It's an annual event. It's, it's at the Variety Playhouse, uh, usually. It's been at Terminal West as well, our great friends over there. But it's a, it's a different lineup every year, all kinds of different collaborations. And they pay, they play, they pay tribute to a different musician every year as well, mm-hmm. correct? It's been Colonel Bruce in the past. It's been uh, Vassar Clements. Um, all kinds of different artists. And they, it's, you get four or five... Really good sets of music, always with collaborations. It's always underattended, which because it's you know around that Christmas time of year. And I also think some people don't go because they think it's going to be Christmas songs. 
I think this year we got one the entire night, and it was a Tex Logan song, and one that we also got a private version of that you'll hear when we do our holiday. We'll do a holiday, a holiday episode, pre-holiday hoot. Uh, we've got a bunch of stuff on uh, in the can for that one. But uh, we're really proud. It's one of the best things about Atlanta is this, is this holiday hootenanny. Folks, uh, we get into Jerry. We talk about Jerry in this Jerry! episode. We talk about Peter finding his own voice uh, in some of his more recent albums like uh, uh, Dharma Blues and uh, Aloha. And, um, I don't know. I just love this guy. I think to say Peter Rowan is a bluegrass musician Sure, that's true, but he's so innovative. I mean, he's taken bluegrass. You just said the Aloha. He's br- he brings in the Hawaiian vibe. He brings he does reggae. He does some of the best bluegrass reggae I've ever heard. And his shows are always so so soulful. I mean, he's a shaman. He's a storyteller. He really reminds me of a shaman, though. I think he's a modern shaman. And he pokes fun at us too. So if you people who are annoyed by us, I guess they're probably skipping over this. But if for some reason you're skipping and you're just not quite at the interview, he makes fun of us. So enjoy that. So let's take it on over, Seth. All right. Without further ado, Peter Rowan. Chubby Wise from Florida. Vassar Clemens from Kissimmee, Florida. The Kissimmee Kid. The Kissimmee Kid. Young Vassar hanging out, listening to Chubby. Chubby telling Bill that this is the kid. He's the one. And Chubby moves on. I guess he's gone off with, uh, I mean, he went with very many different people after Bill Monroe, and I don't know why he left. I never heard that story, but I met... He was wooed to the West for some reason. Well, he... uh, I think he went to work with different people. Hank Snow. I think he was with Hank Snow when I was on the Opry with Bill. Uh, it's just moving through the ranks of country music. One, one of the goals for fiddle players in those days was to get to Vegas and play with Judy Lynn, oh. who had a fiddle section in a Western swing band. She had four fiddles. And that was a, a you got to wear a fancy suit and uh, play Vegas, and it was known as a steady job for fiddlers who had been driving around in the back of sedans for years around playing in the south you know um judy lynn had a western swing band up there in in vegas and uh that was considered a pretty sophisticated goal for a fiddle player because i'm I'm not sure maybe vassar went uh dale potter uh, uh 
oh, many fiddlers who played with Bill ended up with Judy Lynn for a while. And, um, but uh, I digress. Um, but, for example, what you're talking about is Bill Monroe's working with somebody who's bringing something to him musically. Well, Vassar told me a story of the young Jimmy Martin auditioning for Bill and, and getting the job, and then Bill having Chubby teach Jimmy Martin how to play with a flat pick because guitar player Jimmy Martin played with a thumb pick, which was the older style of playing, one that I still employ, um, a thumb pick and a finger which was just kind of a, a rolling guitar technique that had been standard for everybody in bluegrass until until Jimmy Martin started playing with a flat pick and started to develop those, kind of hammering those runs in. And that's what we all learned from him. Uh, but Chubby Wise, because he was a fiddle player, could play pizzicato. He could pick the strings, and he used to pick. And it was in Monroe's mind that take the talent of Jimmy Martin, take the finesse of Chubby Wise, and put that on the guitar. Now you've got something that he, he thought was a much more uh, powerful, rhythmic, rhythmic approach. And um, if you look at pictures of the Bill Monroe band back in the Flat and Scruggs days with Chubby in the band, there's a very famous picture of them singing a gospel tune and Lester Flatt's not playing guitar. And uh, Lester and Earl are standing next to Bill. And he's playing the mandolin. And over on stage, uh, over on the left, is a man playing guitar with a flat pick. And that's Chubby Wise. So on all those gospel records where it's just so slick, you know, he'll set your fields on fire. All that early stuff that was part of the Flatt and Scruggs era with Bill Monroe. That wonderful guitar playing. It's not Lester Flat at all. It's Chubby Wise, the fiddler playing guitar. Hmm. So Bill already knew what Chubby had, and he 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 liked his guitar playing, and wanted that to be the style of his for his guitar players as they came in with the old, you know, finger picking kind of strumming style. So that changed things, and and so that's another example of Bill, you know. Knowing what he wanted, as as people brought their own talent to him. Now, now, when you chose to leave Bill Monroe, of course, part of it is that you want to have your own voice and start your own band. But you've always been a socially conscious guy. You're a lover of peace, right. and Bill Monroe, God bless him, was very progressive in some ways, but very conservative in others. And the Vietnam War is going on. Can you talk about how that affected your decision at all? Well, yeah, it was really part of the times is that in the world of the South, it was segregated. There were colored restrooms, there were colored drinking fountains, white restrooms, white drinking fountains, coloreds only, whites only, and that was my environment being an early 20s person in the South, you know. And even then, it was a stark contrast to Massachusetts. Oh, stark. Yeah, except on the personal level. Uh, Bill liked my dad. He really liked him. And uh, there was a commonality of of a kind of a 
respect there because Bill's dad had died when he was very young. And so he, Bill Monroe, Mike Seeger and Ralph Rinsler had done an article for Sing Out magazine calling Bill Monroe the daddy of bluegrass. That's where the whole idea of the father of bluegrass came out of that in the 60s. Before that, he was Bill Monroe. You know, in some senses, he was looked upon as somebody who had, had, was over the curve, you know, had had the success, and bluegrass was on its way out. I mean, truthfully, bluegrass was in danger of being lost in a lot of people's minds because it was ignored in terms of uh, its place. It It was a kind of a between country music and folk music, where was bluegrass, you know? Bluegrass had been a hit, hit music. It, Blue Moon of Kentucky by Bill Monroe was a million seller or whatever, you know? Uh, but by the 60s, it, it was no longer high up on the country charts. Very little bluegrass was making it to, and country music as an industry had moved on. And so, it was just before uh, Willie in the 70s was going to bust out. Uh, so the 60s was, I mean, Bill Monroe was still playing, and he was still an epic and iconic figure. Uh, but there was sort of, a, except for the devotion of people like Ralph Rinsler, Mike Seeger, and then the young acolytes like myself, you know, Bill Keith, David Grisman, um, and Bill opened his his band up to Yankees, saying the music is beyond culture. You're saying we don't have to be from the South; that you can make a good bluegrass boy out of the raw material of of other people. It was a big step for him, you know, because it was so ethnically uh, and and culturally bound as a you know <coughs> Southern white music. But what was in it was. As I said, you know, Bill already had many black, a uh, couple of black players in his in his world, Ray Charles and D. Ford Bailey, and Bill's own musical sensibilities were partly honed by a black musician named Arnold Schultz that lived up there in Kentucky in the summertime. He was from New Orleans, and. Uh, he would come up and do work summers in, in Kentucky and go back to New Orleans in the winter. What instrument? Guitar. And that's where Bill's whole guitar sound was developed. The runs, you know, playing the runs, uh, articulating the passing notes between chords. <laughs> well, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> you mean... That was my effort at Uncle Penn. Oh, Uncle Penn. <laughs> Acapella, Uncle Penn. Well, Acapella Uncle Penn, Penn. you know, it's, that's the classic lick you're going to miss with when you start playing with Bill Monroe. <laughs> you, you're going to, you know, it's ding-a-ding-a-ding, you know, and, but it, it's classic for a, a bluegrass. Everybody who's played that song with Bill Monroe has always, has at least once played ding-a-ding-a-ding. <laughs> You know, play the wrong note on the last note. It's like playing Sissy Strut with Leo Nocentelli. What's that? It's like playing Sissy Strut with Leo Nocentelli. The meter song. Oh. Leo always comments about how there's a certain part of it that musicians always do incorrectly. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. 
Wow, I, I didn't know about that. Sorry to derail you. Since Uncle Pen came up, just real quick, have you been back to the house? Is that, does that still happen? When I was the last time you went we, to the Uncle uh, Pen house? Coach Robbins and I went to Uncle Pen's cabin, and we had our woo-woo moment, you know, it was like... So it was only one it time? went at midnight. <laughs> yeah, it got scary after Well, midnight. it was all falling down when we were there. It wasn't even a cat, but they rebuilt it. Okay. No, when we went back into the woods there, you know, I wouldn't say Bill had fallen on hard times, but there was no, uh, he was not enshrined. And he had ideas about how to do a Bluegrass Hall of Fame and stuff like that, but there was something about business in Bill Monroe that didn't quite mesh. <laughs> uh, Uncle Penn's cabin was just a wreck of a cabin when I went up there. But it had a feeling. I oh, bet. yeah. You know, we definitely had a feeling, and we, we brought the feeling to it. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to remember, actually. I, it, it wasn't a sturdy structure. I was actually surprised at how run down it was. It was... Because I had heard people sitting, talking about sitting on the roof of Uncle Ben's cabin and playing music. There wasn't much of a roof when I went up there. It you know, just did run down. You address the importance of authenticity in the bluegrass world. And we've, we've talked about it so many times. And it's maybe lessened these days. But it was very vitriolic back then. There were a lot of purists. So when the idea of forming a bluegrass band with the member of the Grateful Dead was initially brought up, what kind of pushback did you get from your, from your circles? None. Is that right? <laughs> Nobody cared. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was all between us. As it, there was no, there was no daddy figure at that point. We were our own young men. We, you know, uh, we just wanted, we wanted to carry on playing, and turned out Jerry did too. And so, for I would say, a couple of years. That's what we did, you know, until Grateful Dead started to build up momentum again and become, you know, stadium band. Uh, and uh, and we, David wanted to do jazz, his dog music, you know, in the end, and I wanted to play with my brothers. And so we were still young, you know, we were in mid-20s and still growing. And Jerry already had his growth vehicle which was the Grateful Dead that's where he was going to find his ultimate expression however what I didn't understand was the depth to which Jerry was committed in his own way to Olden in the way and would have kept going even with David leaving to go play dog music Jerry would have kept going but I I could just didn't feel like I could take the responsibility to be the band leader. Uh, having done that for Bill Monroe, the idea of being, you know, coordinating Olden in a way and Jerry being like, well, no, I've got a gig with Merle that night. You know what I mean? It, yeah. you, you'd end up having to book everything around Jerry's schedule, which, uh, you know, a few people have been able to do that keep their whole thing going. Melvin Seals and, and Merle uh, Saunders, specifically. Yeah. And John Kahn, of course, but, but John was always going to be included in whatever Jerry did uh, outside the Grateful Dead. Had John played bluegrass before that at all? Uh-uh. But he, he 
hit it out of the park. Because he listened to early bluegrass and got it right away. Say, he must have been listening then, right? Yeah, yeah he listened to uh, Cedric Rainwater play with early Bill Monroe recordings. And that walking bass was what Bill wanted. And that died in bluegrass, especially in the 80s. Where everybody's like, keep perfect time, perfect time. And it was killing the music. And uh, But, you know, we were still, even a decade before that, in the mid-70s, hearkening back to the earliest of bluegrass sounds. And uh, I... There was just an intuitive connection between all of us that we were too young to even be smart about. Like, hey, this is really important. Let's keep this going so that, in, in, you know, it, it, had Jerry lived, had we been able to focus in on Olden in the Way as an ultimate expression of music, we could have been making records and, and now. You know, so in a way, yeah, it was sort of tragic, but... Uh, but it, it had its bright moment, a moment called Olden in the Way, and, you know, uh, it's it's iconic, revered, yeah. Can you talk about the dynamic, though? Of course, on the one hand, he's in this big band, and he's getting you, it's easier to get the bookings. You got a record label right away and all that. But you had played with all these people he admired. He must have been picking your brain. He must have been so excited to play with you. And he must have asked, had questions, particularly Tony Rice. By then, you knew Tony Rice, right? And Cherry always no, Tony looked up. was was to come in after that. Tony was, oh, okay. was still a young uh, player, learning from Clarence White. But Jerry was a student of all those Bill Monroe musicians that many of whom you had played with. Have you guys heard the tape of of Jerry and Sandy Rothman being ta- with a tape recorder running? watching Jim and Jesse on a television in Virginia when they went and did their bluegrass pilgrimage. No, I would love to hear that. It is hilarious. I mean, it is it's so unselfconscious. So here's, they're in a motel in Virginia. They've come east to try and hear, go where the bluegrass is. And Jerry, some, something about Jerry auditioning for Bill Monroe, and it was like, you know, going for... Something good going out, you know. That's you know what it was really. It was it was a lot of that sort of just. You didn't know what you were going for. You just were going for it, for it. What whatever that was, you know, life, love, music, uh, and then unfortunately drugs. But uh, there's a wonderful tape. I don't know where it is or who has it. Of Bill Monroe and his traveling buddy and guitar player Sandy Rothman. Watching Jim and Jesse on TV on their morning show in Virginia, and it's a tape of them. It, it's just audio tape, and you can hear the bluegrass music, and you can hear Jerry going, "Oh man, look, that's how they do that," you know, and Sandy going, "Yeah, look at that," and you know, we'd never seen bluegrass, so we didn't know that you had to lift your instrument up a little bit to get the sound in the microphone uh. and. And then step back, and then all people come together and sing in one microphone, all vocal together. We didn't know that. We didn't know what it was. It just sounded like magic because it had a natural dynamic to it. And but did, if you ever want to hear the most endearing thing is 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 Jerry's comments watching uh, this show uh, uh, and surprise, uh, you know, because he's watching Alan Shelton on the banjo. 
He's going, geez, man, look at that. Oh, oh, he's capoed. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, we we could hear and sort of interpret things through our ears, but for these California dudes watching bluegrass on TV on on a morning show and taping themselves, <laughs> listening to it. <laughs> It, it it's astounding you know that was the intense love you know that uh you know jerry personified that about everything that he did in the music end of things well he's such a student of song right yeah i mean he knew old sea shanties and stuff yeah. i mean would you guys just throw around crazy songs and yeah we worked out of uh several song books that david had collected and kept whereas i had had them and i don't know god knows where they were you know yeah, I I tend to collect things and then, I don't know, maybe they're in a basement somewhere. <laughs> but, um, there were several wonderful songbooks. Uh, there was the New Lost City Rambler songbook. There was the Bill Clifton songbook. And there was uh, several, uh, you know, David being from New York had begun collecting everything he could that had to do with bluegrass. As he would go hear somebody he'd go to the little you know whatever concession stand and he'd buy the songbook you know and and they had no music just lyrics there was stanley brothers songbooks everybody had songbooks songbooks with pictures and that was what they sold and so we we basically used those as as our guides but we also knew plenty of songs i'd been with bill monroe i knew all the monroe songs but there were there were tunes that we loved that weren't uh, easily uh, remembered, you know, that we'd heard. So we'd find them in these songbooks and we'd do them. Uh, most of the stuff that made it to the records, especially the first record, was stuff that I knew or we knew already. Um, but then there were my tunes, you know, and, and Jerry was very open. He was a green light uh, in terms of my material which coming from the East Coast where everybody was like, you know, even bands I was in were like highly critical of my writing. They were like, eh, this, you know. And I, I agree, they were moody songs and not really up-tempo, most of them. But, um, you know, I, I wrote my own complete album of material, the first Earth Opera record, you know, and the second Earth Opera record was... I. I came out of Nashville writing this material, and people in Nashville were like, huh? You know, that didn't make any sense to them. Um, and even on the band C Train, I brought in Panama Red, and they were like, no, that's a little too country for us. And, you know, what, what the heck? <laughs> it was a hit song, you know. And, but it, it got me to the, it, it got me following my dream to the West Coast again to hook up with, uh, my brothers and Dave Grisman and, and Jerry, uh, suddenly people liked my songs. Mississippi Moon, Panama Red. It was like uh, I had found my milieu. I had found my contemporaries, you know. And Jerry was the big part of it. I mean, really, it was Jerry's... Who could you make? I, I couldn't even imagine who, who else in the music business had that kind of power as a musician. Uh, you know, because we had all seen, to a degree, what... We all loved Elvis. 
but we saw Elvis as a tragic figure. And John Kahn went to Vegas and, and heard him. He said it was the best show he'd ever been to. Elvis had the power. He was the god. And But we were all sort of junior Elvises in our own way. We, he gave us the vision. Uh, if you could, you could rock your way to a feeling of liberation. But then Elvis's career ate him up. And as, as most careers will become eventually the burden you carry to keep going. I saw it with Bill Monroe. Uh, you know, and, and, and Bill, you know, one of the things unknown about Bill may have been his ability to not be destroyed by a career, to retire gracefully yet still play music, to have his farm yet still, I mean, he hit it so big early on that he used to drive by a bank and they'd bring him sacks of money to take on the road, sacks. Yeah, Mr. Moreau's here. <laughs> they Get bring the him sacks of cash. Sack. A sack of money and give it to the driver, you know. Um, it, it, that's a whole really interesting part of things that we should talk about another time is the strategy of survival, playing music that is going to give you longevity as well as 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 require longevity to fulfill your vision it'd be fun uh, to do something like that with like the infamous string dusters and green sky bluegrass and have you kind of lead that story there that'd be fun yeah well nowadays these these bands are much more organized and a lot of them started out with the you know funded by however banks parents they went to school you know we didn't do that we just we were like onward through the fog you know <laughs> I think you mentioned Mississippi Moon. I think in two lines in that song, you really struck at one of my greatest expressions of love and what I would look for in a, in a, in a vague way. The light me a candle in the forest so deep. Yeah. Honey, lay down beside me. Let the angels rock us to sleep. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. the inspiration for that? Yeah, I was traveling across the country with uh, my first soon-to-be wife. Actually, not soon-to-be, but 
she was my girlfriend at the time. And uh, that's just one of those imaginary uh, things. It just is. It is what it is. Those lines. I, I couldn't say. I couldn't say this is this or that is that. I would just say that it's a feeling that needed those words. Yeah. It's just a beautiful thing about songwriting. You can say something so clearly without actually saying it at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've hit upon it. The, the ultimate truth there, buddy. <laughs> so Carter Stanley's Eyes is not just about Carter Stanley, though. It's a kind of a love letter to all these musicians. You're that... right. You're right. It is, it's, you know, I, I've been doing... Well, I mean, Tony Rice and I stopped recording and playing about 10 years ago. And since then, I've made, you know, two records for Compass Records, which are bluegrass records with... I decided to keep my own band together after years of the difficulties of trying to keep a bluegrass band together. Is it there? You have to have the focus for to get the bookings, and you have to have the bookings so that you can have the focus. And when I formed uh, the Peter Roan Bluegrass Band with Jody Stecker and Keith Little and Paul Knight, it was just a quartet. Tim O'Brien played some fiddle and still was a vehicle for songwriting. You know what I mean? And it was like, I feel this obligation to the song and songwriting that it's both liberating but also narrows it down because the audience is never going to get anything they've ever heard before on a record of original material. But by putting it in a bluegrass style, at least there was a consistent style. So we did. I did two records for Compass, um, and then we did. Uh, I did a Hawaiian record. This is all over the past five, six years. Is that the one Jack Cassidy's on? Uh, uh, no, no, that was a very important record. I would say that was probably me in, in my own voice mostly. Um, Sorry, Dharma Blues. Dharma Blues. That's right. That was recorded. It was seven years after being recorded that it came out, and that oh. was what two, three, four years ago. So, for my personal expression, I think it's probably in the past ten years that, especially working with Tony Rice, you know, there's a purity of sound there that inspires you to be honest in your your own, you know, addition to that mix um but then the, it, it, you can't help but getting back to the madness of the career part because <laughs> then you have to go do it and right. it's like god you do it you know <laughs> it looks good on paper but <laughs> right <laughs> but anyway uh what uh, back to the point what of well the records of love i mean you have players jack lawrence was with doc forever i'm so I'm so excited. Okay, so what I decided to do for Carter Stanley's yes. Eyes, uh, Dave Freeman of Rebel Records, and I have been talking for years. He knew, he saw me play with Bill Monroe. He saw the promise, and he always said, why not make some bluegrass music that's your real feeling about bluegrass music? And it, And I'm like, well, I'm a songwriter, and if I write a song that needs a reggae feel, I want to go to Jamaica and make a reggae record, and if I write a song that has a bluegrass feel, I want it to be bluegrass. But that kind of eclecticism uh, 
is sort of anti-career. You know, career is all about narrowing the definition so you absolutely see what you get. You get it. If there, that's like that's what it is, right? And forever in my career, it's always been like, well, he doesn't fit this category. He doesn't fit that category. And in fact, that was our our deal. We used to say, we're, we're no style. You know, like Grisman and I, Earth Opera, we're no, we're no style. We don't have a style. We're just music, man. We are a style. <laughs> we are a style. <laughs> and, you know, you have to admire people who who finally pull the focus together like uh, I've been reading uh, Bruce Springsteen's biography and it's like amazing details of this guy was still sleeping on on the beach when he was (laughs) beginning to be signed with Columbia Records I mean he was he was homeless you know he was they were down to you know as he says in the book, you could get by on 30 bucks a week in those days. But it was his intense vision in his mind. He, as he had less and less of what he wanted, he knew more and more what he wanted. and It brought him clarity. It brought him clarity. In my case, I've been a servant of the song because the, the mystery of music... And my own response to it has been in a lyrical, melodic way. And, you know, if I I listen to the first Earth Opera record, it would have been a great bluegrass record. It would have been (laughs) real different, but it would have been a fine bluegrass record. But nobody in those days would... uh, But this is the trick. You'd think nobody would be interested. But we're recording... We're opening shows for The Doors... Recording for Electra Records as a bluegrass band? <laughs> hey, why not? You know? But the, uh, the, the irony is, of course, just uh, five years later, we're doing it with Jerry. Mm-hmm. We're holding our own. See, there was no work as, for bluegrass. You know, Del McCurry, he planted his feet hard and for years played this, just slowly built it until the foundation was solid. It's different in my case because I'm a songwriter. Uh, it was like, I have to be true to, to where the song wants to go. So finally, when, uh, you know, Dave Freeman, I, I, I got a couple of the, I, you know, Dharma Blues and my Aloha, my Hawaiian record. I got those out of my system uh, over the past few years, plus the two records for... Um, Compass were bluegrass records. I mean, they were great. Jim, and I had Jesse McReynolds and Bobby Osborne, Del McCurry, uh, all the great guests. Jason played fiddle, and uh, they were fun records to do. But you know, it's just like I fall through the cracks. the The, the songs aren't quirky; they're bluegrass songs. But to be promoting a singer songwriter in bluegrass as a, you know, where's the focus? The focus in bluegrass has to be on bluegrass as dictated by the awards committees for the IBMA and, you know, these groups of people, mostly southern organizations that are the recognition vehicles for bluegrass. But I'm not part of that. <laughs> I'm known and I'm, I, I am 
in the bluegrass world, but I'm not known as, I mean, in, I mean, it's in, inevitable that somebody will slap an award on my wall at some point, but... <laughs> But we happen to have one for you right now, Rob. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's an odd subject to even talk about because it's it's like wh- where is my recognition? My recognition is is with my fans, but they're not voters in the IBMA awards scheme. You know what I mean? It's like coming up and playing the Christmas Hootenanny. It's like you know it. That's my scene. My Aloha, Appalachian Mountain. I wander lonely on the mountain I knew I had lost my way I fell asleep and I lay dreaming Of a paradise so far away You know, it was Dave Freeman who just kept saying, you know, you, you have something in bluegrass that nobody else has. And I, I because I'm a songwriter, I, I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I got to go to Jamaica because my song says I got to go there. <laughs> I got to go to Ireland, you know. And But finally, I, I don't know what happened. I just had another conversation with Dave Freeman and... And he said, you know, you could you could have made a record with us years ago. Probably would have been the smartest thing is just start out with Rebel and stay with them. You know, but they were, you know, in those days, you know, major labels, they, they'd throw money at you this, so you could pay your rent. You might even have a phone. And so you were, you're part of a scene. It was also rock and roll, you know, late 60s, uh, early 70s, you know, and so here's a, a label that's a bluegrass label that's done Ralph Stanley's music. And it was actually Dave Freeman's idea. He said, why don't you do some of the tunes that Ralph did of yours? And Ralph did a few of my numbers. And I, I thought, God, that's really a great idea. And it wasn't until two years ago that, I don't know, I just ended up thinking more about well, I'm trying to write a book about those days, and uh, one of the lines in my notebook was, "I've seen, I've seen, I've seen the tombstones in Carter Stanley's 
sunset eyes, which were was my comment upon that meeting initially because he was so ill. He had jaundice, you know. He was really yellow, sallow. Um, I hate to even say that, but uh, uh, it was his daughter, Jeannie, that explained to me, oh, Carter had been diagnosed, you know. He was he knew he was going to die. And what was the backstory of that meeting was that Carter wanted to see Bill Monroe and ask him in person if he'd sing at his funeral. So I drove Bill up from Knoxville to the Clinch Mountains, and Carter was sitting there uh, at the edge of a cleared field, which I think was going to be where the... Stanley Brothers festivals would be held for, in the future, and uh, but that's so country, you know. Where do you want to meet? Well, out by the field, <laughs> you know. And and we stood there, and, and Bill and Monroe actually introduced me, and I'd I'd not known Carter, but we'd been on shows together many a time. We'd played Newport together as Stanley Brothers and Bill Monroe. But as you say, it was kind of a they were like bluegrass gangs you know you didn't <laughs> you didn't really associate with the other bands hmm. you know but but coming from the north jam sessions were all we ever did that's how we learned to play right. you know being city billies jamming was the thing and now you know i got to say old in the way was the first bluegrass jam band and all that means though is that we extended solos that's all that means it doesn't mean that we were like jazz jammers it just meant that instead of just playing a short little burst of instrumental music and then focusing on the vocal, Holding in the Way had these players in it, and, you know, we'd sing a verse and a chorus, and then do a verse and a chorus as a solo. Do the whole song as a solo. Come right. back in and sing some more. So, because we were into, you know, songs in our generation, Dylan had gotten into the six-minute song, and, I mean, they even had to change government regulations to... To, so that we would be paid for playing more longer songs. Really? Oh yeah, songs used to be defined as a three-minute entity of music that earned X amount of. You, so would you earn double if the song was longer? No, or? no, no, no. God. Wow. Hey, <laughs> if you sign with a record company as a singer-songwriter, they'll tell you you can only get seventy-five percent of statutory rate. Because why? You're the singer and you wrote the songs. Well, yeah, don't you get more money for that? No, you get less money for that because you're the artist, too. That's when you work with companies. They they drive you insane with these things because, oh, well, I'm going to go off on something here that just is <laughs> the history of exploitation. <laughs> Rebel Records is a bluegrass label. They've never done anything different. And they've had their share of awards, and Ralph Stanley recorded for... 30 years on that label after Carter died. So it was kind of perfect that I would sing Carter Stanley's Eyes on Rebel Records and tell the story of, that I knew of Carter and then not write all the songs. This is the first record I, ha I haven't written all the songs in years, 30 years. So this is a, an album of bluegrass not standards, but not necessarily well-known standards, just songs that are vehicles for the energy of the original bluegrass quest, you know, which is to plumb the depths of the heart's reaction to being born, living a life, falling in love, trying to find work, 
uh, sickness, uh, spiritual yearning, and ultimately death. Those don't, those elements have to be in in bluegrass for it to be real bluegrass. But there's musical bluegrass too that's just fun music, you know. But so when I did this record, Carter Stanley's Eyes, I wanted all those elements to be there. Birth, life, and so the songs I chose were songs that Carter wrote and uh, Ralph. I wrote a few. Uh, and cho- songs that they didn't write, but they chose to represent what their feeling of life. That's best I can say why this record is different. Yeah. And you chose the players to serve that as well. I chose the players. Uh, Don Rigsby, a devoted uh, Stanley Brothers uh, lineage player, plays with J.D. Crow, does his own thing. Uh, Pat Sauber, fantastic banjo player, um, so musical. All the all those songs you hear on the record were done live, and uh, all the solos are live. Nobody was into the mindset of like, hey, let me do that over, you know. Uh, and Jamie Oldacre on percussion. I've always felt that bluegrass could have a musical contribution from the percussive side, not just a decorative contribution right because it's very difficult for a drummer to know where where to go in a music that has it so many polyrhythms you know it's got it's got so many notes so many polyrhythms going on but with Jamie we sat down and just sort of said well you know not only for fiddle tunes which are you know People have always used some kind of percussion in fiddle tunes like piano, snare drum. I'm thinking of Cape Breton fiddle music and stuff like that. Uh, Bluegrass has got this idea that it's all strings, and it is, but Bill Monroe's used percussion. Jimmy Martin used percussion. The Stanley Brothers used percussion. But people got to remember also, you, you think bluegrass, you think banjo, and banjo happens to be an African yes. derivative and, and rhythm. Yes, yes. Yeah, so what I Jamie Oldacre played with Eric Clapton for years and uh, J.J. Cale. And um, I met him in Texas. He's part of Twang and Groove, my Texas band. Um, and Jamie, when I met him, he started to show me, he said, yeah, here's a James Brown. This is what became the James Brown beat. He said, one drummer does this, and the other drummer does this. And you put them together, and it sounds like this. And uh, this is, we're sitting down for the first time, we're playing music, and well, where did you learn that? In other words, Jamie's looking at percussion like we look at bluegrass. Where does that come from? Why is it like that? You know, and so he goes, yeah, well, he had two drummers, and they figured out how to play together, and this is the beat they came up with, and it's the James Brown beat. And and every drummer had to learn how to do that on their own after that. It was two guys that invented it. And Jamie got to sit with both of them. On the road with Clapton, you got to meet a lot of people, yeah. you know. And uh, so we sat down and I said, well, look, here's the rhythm for a, a bluegrass song. I said, here's how it sounds, but what I'm actually doing is this. And I do the the variation with the, the original kind of guitar picking. And I said, how would you interpret that? And he, he played with his fingers. I said, well, what about 
a, a snare roll, you know. So we came up with with rhythms that there was a a duet, a couple of guys, a couple of black musicians out of Mississippi, Lonnie something, the fife and drum. It was just a guy playing a drum and a guy playing a, a fife, a, 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 a whistle, a fife, uh, made a, a cane fife, made from sugar cane, a little, you know, and it, if you ever hear this stuff, it'll just blow your mind because it's, it's what's going on underneath all Southern music. It's like going back and understanding that it was really the rhythm of the slaves that permeated everything. It was the black music that, that permeated everything from minstrel, minstrel shows. Everybody dressed up as black people and went around playing proto-bluegrass and cakewalking. And bluegrass came from, from that too. It, 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 it came from all of that, but it, the, <coughs> the, the, you can't trace it. I mean, you can trace it back musically easily, but you can't always find the link. Uh, the guy who wrote uh, Lovesick Blues, uh, was a black-faced white guy, Emmett Miller. Hank did that one, right? Yeah, it's a, it became a Hank Williams hit. But he was a, a minstrel singer. He was a white guy, wore a blackface, and he toured with the Dorsey Brothers. And originally, the original recording, I got the feeling called the blues, oh, Lord, oh, that, that. it's real minstrel style, wow. but it's in jazz. So, I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? It's like, wow, the direct link is through the imagination of these people, like Bill Monroe, you know. So I decided to, instead of being a, writing every song and it all being about my vision, I decided to portray the vision of the Stanley's approach, and I, as I looked at the, the the studio sheets for their last year of recording up at uh, up at uh, Sid Nathan's place, Starday Records, up in Cincinnati, whose other label mates were uh, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters and James Brown, that's what the that's the label mates of the Stanley Brothers in their wow. last year. It's just like you look at the the, the daily session sheets and one week they'd have this bass player another week they'd have this guy next week the banjo player is playing guitar and the next week <laughs> there's somebody else is playing guitar and yet yet the style is all sort of staying within this focus of Sid Nation's vision for Carter to be a country singer Carter to be a country star he saw the commercial side of the Stanley Brothers and Ralph is still there with the banjo but the banjo is 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 not playing every lead. It's not like the early Stanley's Out of the Mountains, which is just like, you know, wow. You know, it's all banjo and fiddle and mandolin. By the time they made their last records, uh, it was lead guitar. George Shuffler playing lead guitar. And many of the banjo players in, in the band played lead guitar. So the idea of what bluegrass could be uh, changed. And the Stanley's, I wanted to bring that out more. So on my record, I have lead guitar. We've got Jack Lawrence, again, who played, what, 27 years with Doc Watson? So amazing. Crazy. Such a great player. Sprouse, too. Blaine Sprouse. And Blaine Sprouse, who was with Jim and Jesse and... Uh, Bill. 
Bill and played Jimmy Martin. And, you know, these are the folks that I've ended up sort of my bros and and we hang together. Uh, Patrick is very popular, so he's playing with several bands. Tim O'Brien and I are always trying to hire him away from each other. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, who produced the record, we should say. And Tim co-produced this record. Co-produced, sorry. Uh, well, you know, Tim is he's so non-invasive. <laughs> but, you know, it was great to have him there. He played on the record. He, he sat in the studio. Then some days he... he He'd feel it was under control and it wouldn't need to be there, but he stayed and 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 was professionally hired to to be part of this record. I've always loved him and Charles Sautel and I were were deep friends, uh, and so again, there's the, there's this sort of lineage in folklore that goes back through all these folks and uh, Paul Knight on bass and and Jamie Oldacre. There is you know he it. For for my money, the percussion really ties it all together, you know. And I, I wish that I had consistently used drums from the beginning, but, you know, coming out of the Monroe band, it, it, it all came down to the strings. I came into bluegrass at a time when purity was part of the deal, you know, and those... those uh, we used to play a party every year at Tex Logan's house in New Jersey, and I have those tapes, and we're transferring 28 reel-to-reel tapes to digital salvage. And, you know, when you hear this stuff recorded in the living room with no compression, and you hear the mandolin, and you hear the guitar for what it is, it's, it's not a recording session. It's, it's very pure. Uh, you know, you realize everything you hear on record is all, like, electrically distorted to some degree compressed compressed sorry. and when you hear the intervals between notes in a live situation in a living room and you hear that mandolin of bill monroe's you know it's it's like monroe treasured the sound of that mandolin and he he played with the sound of it not only the music mm-hmm. he played with the sound and and you realize that the the tonalities are what's carrying things, rather than oh it's a good song or oh that's a nice take. It's like the tonalities themselves in the living room. You can't even hear half the instruments. All you hear is who's on mic, and yet it's fine. It's it's almost more exciting than hearing. Okay, put the banjo over here in the mix and put this over here in the mix. And now can you hear everything? We yeah, we can hear everything, but you miss that gnarly tonality where it's all on one microphone and it's it's what who's standing in front everybody's still playing but you know it's it's a, it it's what gave the music its vitality in the beginning i think and uh, and you lead the album with drum beats on the watchtower which which ralph recorded did you choose to lead it because that's one that exemplifies the change and it's your song partly but also it came out well all right we should let you go tony rice have you talked to him lately how is he i hear tony is 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 guarding his health and uh, mentoring some young people around the country when was the last time you talked to him uh it's been uh been a couple of years and in midnight moonlight why is alamo mission that the the chosen meeting place for the person offering to be called anytime Well, I wrote it in San Antonio during a time when the uh, 
neighborhood around the Alamo was still the old San Antonio, still wooden buildings. It was mostly Latino area. And gave my notice to sea train there and stayed in, in San Antonio while they went on. I joined them later up in Washington, D.C. for the last shows. But at that time, San Antonio, uh, I would go out at night. I'd stayed at, I stayed at this little place, a little holiday inn across the street from a church. And every night they'd have a dance in the church. And I'd open my window and you could hear the music coming across, you know. So I wandered out into the Latino areas, the Hispanic. It was all Hispanic, that side of town at the time, the west side. And, um, you know, I discovered, I think I discovered the jalapeno for the civilization of cuisine. (laughs) (laughs) Because, uh, you know... You you'd go down for a dollar twenty five. You'd get your 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 tacos, but you, if you wanted to drink a beer, you'd have to go next door to the pool hall to buy the beer. And uh, could you bring the taco over and eat it there? Yeah, well, yeah, okay. you could do that. <laughs> but no, San Antonio is a very rich cultural city, and especially at that time. Um, what time was that? Late sixties. Yeah. Uh, And I would go out at night and just walk along these little boardwalks, really. It was still like a cow town. Huh? No, not the river walk. The river walk was, was a new thing. Um, I got down there once, maybe, but not during this first trip to San Antonio. Was I was amazed because, you know, air conditioning wasn't big. A lot of people sat outside on their porches at night. And it just, I felt life. I felt life. I had, the Hispanic population in San Antonio were living outside on their porches in the evening talking. You know, there seemed to be a, a vitality there that was missing in the world that had become air-conditioned. These people were too poor to have air conditioning. You know, it was still, you know, 90 degrees and people sitting outside at night to get some cool breeze in Texas. And I, uh, the music that went along with it was I'd walk down through these alleyways and um, I'd hear this music. I'd go in, and I'd they'd look at me like, "What? You know, I'm long-haired <laughs> hippie freak. You know, <laughs> as far as they're concerned, you know, I'm a rock and roll musician." And and yet I was able to be comfortable with everybody. I mean, I don't know, but maybe I was in danger. But you know, people really respected me. You know, and I'd I'd stand there. I'd buy a beer, maybe. Um, and I'd hear an accordion and trumpet duet. And I thought, this is fantastic. You know, I've been on the road with C-Train playing like same set every night, and which has wonderful power. But here I am standing in a, a dirt floor cantina in San Antonio and, and listening to, you know, a trumpet and an accordion duet of people that are probably doing it for free maybe for supper even and i'd walk from one place to another and there was a lot of music but very informal you know there wasn't a full band there was no no microphones you know it was just like is it this must be the beginning or the end of something (laughs) and it turned out to be the last years of that barrio they tore it all down Uh i went back a few years later uh to play a festival called the joshua ives festival of love and that whole area was flattened. It's now banks, 
another couple of hotels and, and a bed a, bath beyond and a little <laughs> and a bed bath and beyond and 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 a little tiny corner of the old neighborhood with a pharmacia and a market a mercado it's a tourist area mm. but i got there at the end of the cowtown era that had started in the 1800s and was still still there in the 1960s and it was fantastic it and really was midnight moonlight from it and I wrote Midnight Moonlight. That's where it came from, right there. Yep. Well, your ride is waiting for you. You are truly a national treasure. This has <laughs> been one of my favorite interviews ever. I'm so grateful for your time. <laughs> you I'm guys... grateful for Thomas T. Dog Helen for bringing you here to do this show and for allowing us to. You know. Absolutely. And you guys, you know, I mean, you're historians. You're historians. You know, you're, you're, you're looking at the big picture. It's great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. And I can hear sweet voices sing Sarah Mabel Carter, Lena Machado Genoa, Kirabe, voices ringing Queen Larry, Okalano, Aloha Sail the sea alone Following that rainbow light above me My Aloha Appalachian Mountain home My Aloha Appalachian Mountain home That was the end of our time, the last 40 minutes of which I think we kept some poor woman waiting. I gave her a massive hug. And I gave her a, one of Rob's cassette tapes that was a Fish 1997 where they were playing Still Waiting. I brought you a cassette tape. Oh, because I just, because I told you, I just nope. threw out 100 tapes? Nope, this has a shimmy jam on it. This is a oh, Disco biscuits. biscuits. And I think that little, this is a precursor to Little Shimmy, which is a song they wrote about you. I hope so, because that's what I tell everybody. I tell everyone Little Shim- that too, but no. Little Shimmy walks a conga line. I saw one of the first versions when, in, uh, when they opened for string cheese at some band shell at their old college in State College, Pennsylvania. And long, 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 long time ago. Hey, I never finished on my Tennessee trip either. Tennessee. Um, to, to, to Tennessee. I mentioned the String Dusters, which, by the way, Rise Sun is their latest release. And even though I'm, I'm really, I love all of them, but I tend to be an Andy Falco guy. He's, he's fun to watch. But this was a Jeremy Garrett night. He was on fire. And Seth, the next time they come, I'd really like to sit down one-on-one with Jeremy Garrett, if you could make that happen for us. We talked also about D- D- Doom Flamingo with the powerhouse vocalist, Kanika Moore. If you don't believe me, go to their website, doomflamingo.com. Check out the vid- vid- videos. They're also working on a new album of original material, and Umphreys McGee released a version of Cashmere on their YouTube channel with her on vocals. Outstanding. But 
I forgot to tell you that I, I went to... to mention. Did I forget to mention? Forget to mention the Ryman? I yes. Think, no, I don't think you forgot to, did you? I didn't really get into it. I got to see the... Um, the uh, v- VIP set, which had some nuggets in it. Had some- oh, Bumfries McGee, yeah. Yes, and, and, and an empty Ryman, which was really cool, and Joel was playing beautiful. I mean, I always liked Joel, but he was playing really well. They opened with the Cemetery Walk, Cemetery Walk 2, and later on did Dear Lord. Really good vehicles for Joel. Awesome bottom half, and Alex's house. These are all songs I rarely get to see, and they did them all in the VIP set. Boy, that kind of stuff that pisses off Jam Band Trump, right? Oh, yeah. But then the show... At the Ryman, dude. First of all, they they played Spires, which I never catch, which made up for the red tape. I also never catch that they did the night before. <laughs> Hard edge jam, but they kept it short. Then they did a three-song acoustic set in the middle of it at the Ryman. I had to leave my spot. I was hanging way in the back because Waffle messed up the ticket, so I didn't really have a ticket. I thought you normally just stand and breathe over his shoulder. No, more Mitchell, because Mitchell... Yeah, let you put the headphones on. Yeah, and we also... Chris and I... Chit chat and, and crack, While, crack during each other. Music, you you chit chat on top of the music. He with he, the sound engineer. He knows. Way to go, Rob. That's worse than like talking over somebody. No, worse would be talking to Waffle because he has to be constant. Gun. Mitchell has certain points where he has to be attentive, and then other points where he's 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 so in command of that thing. But but I'll tell you, Uncle Wally, and then the Pequod, which is on Anchor Drops, and we're going to be talking about that soon because there's an anniversary. We have Kevin Browning coming up. Pequod is a beautiful song. I don't think I'd seen them play that forever. And to hear their acoustic guitars, these boys, acoustic guitars, bouncing around the rhyming, so cool. And then Jake Don the Electric, and they did the wait around. So then they're getting to the end of the set, and they're running out of time. So they do two-by-two, which I don't know if you remember when they did Atlanta. They did like a 25-minute version. It was a highlight of a kind of weak first set. Like a standout, if I remember correctly, it was the 29th, but whatever. This one still, still sort of long, but no real improv. But it was to leave time for 10 years gone. A vicious Zeppelin cover that they crushed. Is Red Rock sold out with Jason Bonham? Because they're clearly getting Zeppelin material ready and they're clearly not just going to do hits, they're clearly going to do some nuggets. With Jason Bonham, like this, ten years wow. gone, awesome, and then a five-song second set with a, a lot of a lot of cool jamming, draconian closer, and White House Road, Tyler Childers, really cool. Sounds like you had a good time there. Yes. So then I was thinking I was going to go see Ryan and Myers in this punk thing afterwards. So I went up front because I could exit quick. So way on the left side. So they're playing Ringo. <laughs> And they they do this thing, you know, sometimes where the guitars come face to face at the front of the stage. And Jake, like, went to slap Brendan and knocked three buttons right off of his shirt. So then <laughs> Brendan goes to sing the end of it, and he's got, like, sexy Brendan chest going. It's pretty, pretty funny. funny. Yes, they were very cool. I didn't. I ended up going out, getting a hot dog and, and, and after the show, and then hustling over to where this punk thing was, and I was in a short sleeve shirt sweating, and it was cold, and the line was, like, up the block, so I didn't get to... I cannot report on that show. I'm sorry, Seth. Well, Rob, you failed us once again. But... Um, Wonderful time, and uh, I would like to point out to our listeners that um, our city winery here in Atlanta had a uh, a Seder event. One that Michael Michael Dorfman, yeah, Dorf, Michael Dorf, yeah, he was he's the owner CEO of City Winery, and he was there. I always want to call him Dorfman, but Michael Dorf is a very significant player for a lot of reasons. But the concerts at Carnegie Hall that he puts on, he will be known for beyond his years. Uh, yeah, well, he he invited me to. 
participate in the Seder. That is so cool. So and, cool. You know, and here's the thing. I was, I'm, I'm one of the artists participating. You've got speech from Arrested Development. Did you get to You've hang out You've got a comedian. I gave him my card and chatted with him for a second. You got comedians there. You've got uh, Blind Boy of Alabama. Uh, one of the blind boys was there, actually two of them. Um, an opera singer, a local opera singer who was just stunning. David Braza, Broza. Not David Broza. I'm thinking you know, Green Sky. Oh, no, no, Green no, Sky no, Bluegrass. No. Shout out. No, no. But he yeah, should no, sing no, more. No, Nothing no, against no, Paul. I love you, Paul. Dave should just sing more. Love his, love um, his draw. Israel, love his Israeli musician. Very famous. Oh. Really, really amazing. F- Flamenco-style guitarist. Just am- phenomenal. And then me. Oh, no, and then Lewis Black. They, they telecasted Lewis Black. He wasn't there, but they did it. Oh, a, I love Lewis yeah. Black. And, so, and then me. It's like, what am I going to do? So I come out, and I'm supposed to do the blessing over the wine, right? Second cup of wine. So I kind of I had an idea what I was to do, and then, and then Dorf was like, emailed me. He's like, listen, you're an auctioneer. Why don't you have fun with that? So here's what I did. I get up there. I'm like, first of all, uh, and I kind of did like a little stand-up. I was Wait like, a minute. You're what? a auctioneer. Yeah, I am your auctioneer. So... Uh, I'm like, I get it. I get it, Dorf. I get it. Second cup of wine. Seth Weiner. I see what you're doing there. That was my warm-up. Everyone laughed. But here's what I did. I talked about the story about how I used to was in college, and I, I did the annual Burning Bush Stone Seder, and I got the money from the Hillel to be able to do the Seder because I didn't want to do their Seder. And I had like you know, 40 or 50 kids come to my apartment, and we'd do the Seder there. And then I'm like, but I'm also your auctioneer. So and then they had the uh, city winery does this thing where they have they obviously make their own wines at their at their venues but they sometimes label them for the show so they're like the artist wines they call them it's limited edition so they had one for that night and so what I did is I auctioned it off and I gave the money to Hillel for my alma mater Florida State University how much eighty one dollars which is eighteen backwards which is a significant number in Judaism wow Colonel Bruce would like that yeah so it was fun um, definitely a cool event He's what, what, what is significant about eighteen in Judaism eighteen is high it's good luck hi hi how are you hi um, so yeah that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, and I had a Dorf and I connected right away. I mean, first of all, I walk in. I'm wearing uh, some of my you know nicer clothes, and he looks at me. He goes, oh, "You shop at Robert Graham, huh?" I'm like, "I'm like, how do you know? Like, it's not like wow. Lucky Brand. It's like because he, he and he she points to his shirt. He's wearing a Graham as well, and he's and I think they're commissioning Graham to make a shirt that it has like a has a, a like a wine stain on it. <laughs> This is kind of funny, right? City Winery. I would definitely want one of those. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, it would be perfect. I think I have a few. <laughs> so uh, City Winery, and a lot, but definitely connected with that. And hopefully, maybe we'll do some more stuff. Maybe we'll take WTNS live on the road with them. Who knows? Can we get speech on the show? Uh, possibly. Where does I mean, he live? I think, it, I'm pretty sure, somewhere around here. I don't Dude. think. Dude. Eh. Let's sit down with speech. That'd be nice. Um, all right, well, that was that. Was that. Uh, looking forward to Sweetwater 420 Fest coming up, as I mentioned. The 419 Got a Minute to Give auction. Uh, Pigeons playing ping pong has been a super donating, uh, super band donating stuff. Here's what I'm going for, though, with like uh, Joe Russo's uh, J-Rad. I want to auction off. You ready for this, Rob? Uh, I, uh, 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 I got an idea. How about auction off the, uh, to write a set list for a set? Uh, I like that idea, but... Dude, they get tons of money. I'll, I'll suggest that. And That's mine good. would have Lazy Lightning in it. I don't it. know if they would do that, but I'll ask. But yeah, If there's any band that would. Here's what they, I'm thinking they would do, though. Like, let me get the scarf off Tommy's neck and whatever he wore, with whatever scarf he wears, <clears throat> on a set to auction that off the next day. Isn't that something just for the ladies? Some, dude, some men are all hot for Tommy. 
especially in Atlanta. You know, I'm Midtown? Hot. Come on. Uh, and got uh, bad, so bad. I'm hot for Tommy. We've got this amazing D'Angelico guitar. Uh, this, it's a beautiful, beautiful guitar. They sent us um, probably, I think it runs retail for like $800, $900. We're going to have uh, all the headliners sign it, and I'm going to auction that off. And tons more. You can check it all out at uh, bidpal.net slash 420fest. That's bidpal.net slash 420fest. More on that coming out through our socials. Thanks so much for listening, Rob. Do you have anything else you want to tell our listeners? We have um, checking out episodes of the Ormica Conan. And, uh, What's that? I don't even know when the interview is. Uh, we're, well, we're both getting through that book um, pretty soon. And um, we also have uh, Kevin Browning from Humphreys McGee. And um, we sat down with Delon Lamar. That was fun. I had a trifecta of shows that night, which is totally random on a Wednesday. But Del, yeah, that that show at Eddie's was was Delvin Lamar great. was really good. And I was I, in the interview. We talked about playing Europe and uh, and about how crowds are better in Europe. But then you know what? He played at Eddie's Attic, and that was a mostly a tenor. There was a little chatting at a couple points, which in the old days Eddie's Attic there'd be no chatting at all ever. But whatever, it still was a very good crowd. And then I went to Nick Lowe and uh, the the straight. Uh, what jackets, t- yeah, the straight jackets. I came out there for the last. What was your songs. third? Which, by the way, was great. I gotta say, and Nick Lowe, I, I love you. I, I haven't seen him that much over the years, even though I've been a fan of his initially because of his association with Elvis Costello, of course. Yeah, and but um, he, he is a wonderful songwriter, such an underrated performer. And Brad, our friend at the Variety, always hangs out with him. A really cool guy, apparently. So. But what was the third show you saw that night? I was walking back to my car. I stopped by aisle five to say hi to Scott, a former intern of mine who works there. And uh, Consequence of Sound was there. That you know the the guy I play. He has kind of a Indian look to him. Or you sure that's the right look. name? Because there's an online uh, blog thing called Consequence of Sound. Pretty sure. Anyway, and they, if not, we'll get it right next episode. And he has the dual guitar. You know, like the the two necks that come out. I don't know what that is. Um, Double neck guitar. But they were cool. Uh, it was late. I mean, for late, it was it was all just about midnight for me, and I was like done. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, and also it was a long. I mean, we we had that early thing, so I didn't want to be. I didn't want another spend another you know another two drinks, and I checked them out, and uh, they were good. The the crowd was. It's so interesting, like being in your forties, and you go from like the Eddie show is like kind of a mixed gender and and age and d- mixed, mixed gender demo- wow mixed demographics <laughs> That's progressive Seth. Uh, well you know for jazz or funk or organ yeah you know, i was surprised to see women at that show although they probably were there because they're husbands or boyfriends at any rate and then you get nick lowe was much more like the uh 50 something crowd and then uh, aisle five was like the 20 somethings and it's sometimes weird to walk into the 20 something scene I don't know. Sometimes it's just a little weird. That's all. There, there were some younger folks at Nick Lowe, and I think Straight Jackets are a big part of that. Am I saying that right? Why am I thinking I'm getting that wrong? They're such a great band. Here, talk about something. I'm going to Well, no, no, no. That's it. Thanks so much for listening, folks. It doesn't matter if Rob gets it right or wrong. You'll be the judge of that. Email us at insideoutwtns at gmail.com. Big thanks again to Spencer with Diamond Street Studios here in a greater part of Atlanta, the little five points. It is. And to Harris Sullivan, Sully Sullivan, for helping us out. Cole for doing the social medias. And of course, Rob for doing the production of all of our events and rather uh, podcasts. And I'm no longer going to talk because Rob looked it up. Yeah, I love straight jackets. I got it right. I used to see them at the Earl. They're, they're a great band to see in a small room. I mean, this, this stuff with Nick Lowe was cool and they were awesome. But you see them headlight in a small room, you will not soon forget it. You might space their name if 
you have a podcast, but you won't forget the experience. And let's not forget our sponsor, Van Zoogle. And... Polay Clark. Clark. That's right. Polay Clark, all your accounting needs. Right at the end here, but in the beginning, we tell you, Polay Clark, we don't wait till next April and get screwed. Get Polayed. Call them today. PolayClark.com. They have knowledge and they have heart. That's what you want people handling your business. And you can be an athlete, not just musicians. They're very adept in the athletic world as well at this point. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the flip.
Thank you.